Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hey, what's up, you guys? I'm Catherine. And I'm Haley. And we are Saturdays Are For The Ghouls, a podcast on the Podmoth Network. We cover all things spooky, like horror movies, true crime, the supernatural, and spooky stories. In the most chaotic way possible. So join your favorite ghoul friends every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And become a spooky babe! (laughs) So spooky babes, we'll see you in your nightmares! Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. You can support the show and get almost three years of bonus episodes over at patreon.com backslash badaxepod. You also get ad-free episodes. There's a link in our show notes and membership start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review, and by telling a friend about us. Now, on to today's case. Today, we are going to Deltona, Florida, again. What? Deltona's having all kind of problems, huh? They are. This is a case that I learned about whilst I was researching our funeral case. That occurred partially in Deltona. This time, though, our case takes place in August 2004. Deltona, Florida is a large city with around 94,000 residents. That's part of the Deltona, Daytona Beach, Ormond Beach metropolitan area northeast of Orlando. It's located on Lake Monroe, which is a huge waterway. So it has this awesome lake that you can do fun stuff in and also the nearby beach, which you can also do fun stuff in. That's pretty cool. On March 17th, 2004... 22-year-old Erin Bellinger moved to Deltona on advice from her father. She had family in the area, and it would be a great place for her to start her life with her boyfriend, Francisco Flacco Roman. His nickname is Flacco. Flacco grew up in Puerto Rico, and they had been having a romantic friends-to-lovers relationship, which was super cute. That is as described by her dad, Erin was born in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, but she grew up in Massachusetts, and she hoped that the warmer client in Florida, as well as the availability of jobs, would help her get a better start in her adult life. Erin and Flacco moved to a small one-story house located at 3106 Telford in Deltona with Erin's dog, adoptioned, named George. That's cool. Mm-hmm. My grandfather had a bunch of dachshunds. Also, I think I don't say dachshunds correctly. 
I, I don't know how you're supposed to say it. I think I've always said dachshund, but yes. I'm pretty sure that's probably not correct either. I don't I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. I always just grew up calling them wiener dogs. Yeah, they're just they're just dogs. So classy. What it's a it's an it's act, what we all call them. It's a very descriptive name. It's more descriptive than dachshund. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, yeah, like everybody knows what a wiener dog looks like. Yeah, you know they they look like a hot dog. They do. I like the wiener dogs that are furry. Like the long-haired ones, they're significantly cuter. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that my inner 12-year-old is coming out. But like, I, w- I, w- I was really trying to stifle a hairy wiener joke. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see where I'm going with this? Uh-huh. Okay. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Hold on. Give me one second. All right, I'm good. The house was painted a pale yellowy tan color with dark brown trim. At first, the pair got jobs working at a nearby Burger King, but they were also putting out feelers for better opportunities. This Burger King job actually ended up working out pretty well, though, because they made a lot of friends at the Burger King. Apparently, there were a lot of really cool people working there, and so it kind of helped them out in a way because they were able to make some quick connections there in their new place that they are living. To cover the bills, Erin asked her cousin, Josh Spencer, to move in with them. Unfortunately, he turned out to be a mooch, though, and a bit of a thief. He refused to help with the bills, and he started taking stuff from Erin, so she booted him from the house. Understandably so. The couple still needed help with bills, but by this time, they had some friends from work who needed a place to stay. Soon, Michelle Nathan was living in the house on Telford with them. Michelle was only 19 at this time, and she dreamed of becoming a veterinarian. She was focused on finding a way to pay for school, and she'd actually talked about joining the Army National Reserves as a way to get part of her college paid for. That's a cool idea. After moving in, Michelle invited her boyfriend, 34-year-old Anthony Vega, to move in as well. So now they had four roommates living in the house, and they were able to make rent, pay their bills, and also they were developing some great friendships as well. In addition to working their fast food jobs, Erin and Flacco had also agreed to help take care of her grandmother's vacation home, which was about four miles away from the house they were renting. Her grandma lived in Maine during the summer, but she also had a single family home with a pool in Deltona where she would stay part of the year. Honestly, this sounds like the best setup, because Florida summer and Texas summer, or at least Southeast Texas summer, very similar. And I have to say, if you can go move in the north or to the north during the summertime, this is the only way to do a southern summer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a reason the birds migrate north in the summer. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, uh, the birds know what's up. 10 out of 10 would migrate again. Oh, yeah. Erin and her friends would go clean the house and also her grandmother's pool to keep it looking nice so that when she came home, it would be you know, a nice, well-taken-care-of house. On July 30th, Erin and her friend Michelle arrived to clean the house and discovered a huge problem. There were several cars parked outside the home, so it looked like they were visitors. And when they went up to go check the house, they discovered that someone had actually broken in, and it appeared that there were squatters living in her grandma's house. Oh man, that's not cool. Erin called her dad for some help, and he had told her that she should just ask the squatters to leave. At the moment, they weren't present, 
And also, I think that she probably was feeling a little nervous because, I mean, would you want to approach squatters? No, I would feel very nervous about that. So Erin decided to call the police. She told the police that the squatters had broken into the home's breezeway, and she could see that they had brought in a mattress and some other items. Later, once she went into the house itself, she discovered that some of her grandmother's items were also missing. When police arrived later that day, the squatters had already fled, leaving behind their belongings. The officers told Erin that she could keep or toss any items that were left behind since the squatters had no legal right to be there. And she was essentially just responsible for handling any kind of damage that was done to the property. It was kind of like a shrug, they're gone, there's nothing we can do situation. Yeah, yeah. Erin and her friends collected the clothes and personal items, and these included an Xbox and some games. The next day, on July 31st, 2004, one of the squatters knocked on Erin's door. He told her that he and his friends actually had permission to stay in her grandmother's house. She questioned this because she was in touch with her grandmother and she knew that wasn't true. According to this guy, her cousin Josh had said that it was okay. She knew that Josh did not have permission. So even if Josh did tell them it was okay, they didn't actually have permission to stay there. Still, she didn't want to have to deal with this guy. So when he demanded that she return his clothes, Xbox, and other belongings, she was going to try to make that happen. Aaron actually recognized the guy at her door. He was 27-year-old Troy Victorino, and he was friends with her cousin Josh. She also knew that he was a criminal, and he was known to be in a local gang. And so she was pretty afraid of him. And she had a reason to be afraid. One of Victorino's prior convictions was for violently beating a friend nearly to death back in 1996. Wow, that's some way to treat your friend, isn't it? This was eight years prior to Aaron meeting him. And in that incident, he struck his friend's face so violently with a walking stick that it partially caved in and he destroyed one of the man's eyes. Damn. That's what you do to your friends. I mean, shit. Imagine what you do to your enemies. Mm -hmm. I think that this incident may have been part of a gang conflict, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Yeah. After he beat the guy's face in, though, he also used the walking stick to impale him. Ooh. Yeah. Ouch. Somehow this guy survived. Wow, that's that's a damn miracle. I mean, shit. Mm-hmm. That's a brutal, vicious assault. That's like basically attempted murder, honestly. Yeah. I mean, or very close to it. For this near-fatal beating, Victorino received a conviction of aggravated battery, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. However, he only served six years of this sentence, and he got out of prison in 2003, which was about a year before he met Aaron. Ironically, two days before he came to Aaron's house to ask for his belongings back, Victorino was actually arrested for assault which violated his probation for that prior aggravated battery conviction. And despite this parole violation, authorities still released him on July 30th on bail. Now, if you recall, July 30th was the day that Aaron discovered that there were 
squatters at her grandmother's house. So he was actually in jail and getting out on bail at the time that she was calling the police to deal with the squatter incident. So the day after he gets out, he learns that Aaron has taken his stuff and then he goes to her rented house. Right. Okay. Aaron told Victorino that she would have her boyfriend Flacco bring him his items back, but they would have to meet up the next day to do the handoff. She didn't tell him this, but the reason why she needed the extra time is that she had actually given away some of Victorino's belongings, including some of the clothes and that Xbox. According to Aaron's family and friends, she planned to get the items back so she could give them back to Victorino. Even though legally she wasn't required to do that, she just didn't want to have to have any kind of conflict with him. Yeah, that that's totally understandable. So, the next day, on Sunday, August 1st, 2004, Victorino called the police himself. He told them that Aaron stole his items from the grandmother's house and that he did have permission to be there. An officer responded and told him that he was going to have to provide a list of the stolen items before the police could do anything about the situation. Hmm. According to this officer, Victorino responded, quote, I'll take care of it myself, unquote. Oh, no. Yeah. That is never a good sign, especially from mm. someone with a history of violence. No. As it turns out, Victorino knew some of the people who had received his clothes. He essentially saw someone wearing his clothes and confronted them about it. And this person told them that Aaron had given them the items. So at this point, he knows that Aaron has given away some of his things, and he became completely enraged. Victorino recruited a few guys at that point to help him conduct a raid on Aaron's home. These guys included 18-year-old Michael Salas, 18-year-old Robert Anthony Cannon, who goes by Anthony, 18-year-old Jerome Hunter, and 18-year-old Brandon Graham. Some of the guys met 27-year-old Troy Victorino that night that he recruited them. Still, they agreed to help him get back his things. According to Brandon Graham, the younger guys were intimidated by Victorino, and they looked up to him because he had a reputation for being a big, bad dude. Man, that's not good. I mean, I understand why stuff like that happens, but I mean, honestly... Men as a whole need to get over this whole idea of, like, the alpha male stereotype trash. Like, that's just, the whole thing is toxic. Mm -hmm. It's just toxic. For context for later, I did want to include how big, quote, how, quote, big and bad he was. He was six foot six and very bulky, and he had a reputation as a gang enforcer. Yeah. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. I mean, with that kind of size, I'm not surprised. At around 1 o'clock a.m. on August 1st, 2004, 
Aaron called 911 and told the dispatcher that there were people banging on her door and they wouldn't leave. You can actually listen to this call. And the 911 dispatcher asks, did you ask them to leave? And she says yes. Yeah, I mean, of course she did. You, you wouldn't call the cops if you hadn't asked them to leave, right? I know. I love that they always ask. I feel like there has to be a script that they have to follow. Yeah. Because they always ask the stupidest questions. The group turned out to be the gaggle of 18-year-old dudes that Victorino recruited. According to Brandon Graham, who was there, he and his friends recruited some girls they knew. He referred to them as homegirls. And the group of them all accompanied Victorino to the house. They rode together in Anthony Cannon's SUV, and the girls had knives, and the guys had aluminum bats. Victorino waited in the SUV so that he wouldn't be seen, while the group of teenagers shouted and threatened Aaron with baseball bats. Aaron told the dispatcher that the teens were yelling things like, quote, where is she? Where is she? Unquote. And that they had also shouted out her name. So she knew they were looking for her. She also told the dispatcher that her little dog, George, was so afraid and that he was shaking. And you can hear her trying to comfort this little dog on her call. Yeah, that's a really scary situation. Mm-hmm. Like, really scary. Yeah, for reals. I mean, because they could easily, like, bust a window or something. Yeah. Or just knock down the door. They have bats. Yeah, for sure. The dispatcher sent some police officers to the scene, but by the time the cops arrived, the crew had actually fled. And this is partially because Flacco had shouted out, Policia! To alert them that the police were coming. Yeah. To hopefully disperse them. And that did work. They did run away. That's good. But before they left, Victorino's crew of teenagers cut the tires on a car in Aaron's driveway. Uh Uh-oh. And at first, people thought that maybe they did it because they thought the car belonged to someone who lived at the house. Like, maybe this was Aaron's car. It actually belonged to Flacco's friend, Abby Vasquez. Aaron gave the police Troy Victorino's name as the instigator, and several of the other witnesses did as well. But authorities say that they couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have any evidence that Troy was the one who was there. They claim that no one physically saw Victorino, and therefore their hands were tied. Now, I will remind you that he was already in violation of his parole a few days before this, so... Yeah, I'm confused about how he's not in jail after he violates his parole. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, we, you know, we watched the the show uh, like Love After Lockup. You yes, know, and, like, we love that show. There's that scene that I that I've I think I've brought up multiple times where uh, what what's his name like is late to his Michael. Yeah, Michael is late to check in with his parole officer by like ten or fifteen minutes, and like literally they take him straight to jail, and he's in there for like a long ass time. He's in there for like a whole year, isn't he? I can't remember how long it is. It was is, a long time. But it is though. super ridiculous. Yeah, like he was 15 minutes late to a hearing, didn't do anything else wrong. This guy violates his parole by beating beating somebody up, mm-hmm. and he's just out free to assault somebody else. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I, I don't get it. And because the police did not arrest anyone, the housemates were terrified that these people would all come back. Flacco was so scared that he called Aaron's dad to let him know what was going on and that Aaron was so upset. And her dad tried to calm her down by just telling her that this crew were probably just punks and they were kind of, their bark was bigger than their bite, that kind of thing. But he also told her that she could come home if she were that scared. But at that point, Aaron decided to just stay. And I feel like when someone 
tells you that. It's like you kind of feel like you want to be strong and not admit any kind of weakness. And it just makes me wonder if that's kind of where she was coming at it from of like, well, maybe I'm overreacting. Yeah, I mean, once you're out of the danger, I'm, I'm sure your mind rationalizes and finds ways to mm-hmm. justify doing what's easy. You know? Yeah. Things were quiet for a few days. But on August 4th, 2004, the crew returned to the Telford house. That same day, they also participated in an assault. And this was a different assault that was in addition to his already parole violation violation. Wow. The group of guys ran into another group of quote-unquote rivals at a park. And then later on, again, at a house. And allegedly, Victorino fired a shot at them during that altercation. Which is kind of a throwaway altercation, but this was happening while they were also planning to deal with Aaron and all of them. Wow. Yeah. Later that same day, August 4th, the men started planning an attack on the residents of the Telford house. According to Brandon Graham, who was part of this crew at the time, Victor Reno came to the group with an awful plan. He told the young men about a film he had seen. It's called Wonderland, and it's about the Wonderland murders. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Wonderland murders. It's a pretty famous murder case. It occurred in 1981 in Los Angeles. And in the movie version of the murders, a group of killers go into an occupied house with lead pipes and beat the occupants to death. Oh my God. Yes. Victorino told the young men that he wanted to do the same thing in the house on Telford Street. Dude, why? Because there's something wrong with him. Well, yeah. I I, I mean, I know. I just... I, I, I don't know. Like Anytime someone is like, hey, I'm dreaming of doing a violent act, I'm like... Why, though? Like, yeah. do literally anything else. I know. Like, like, ice cream exists. Why don't you go eat some of that? Yeah, it's like the same people who are like, you know, they write in their journals like, oh, I, I, my life's goal is to do a murder. I really want to murder oh, yeah. someone. And, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And this guy's like, hey, I want to reenact this movie where people grisly murder each other. And I'm just like, you know, go have an ice cream. Uh, yes. Take a walk. Uh, Watch a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. There's a lot of other movies. Right. Watch a ha- happier movie, you know. Exactly. They, as cringe as it is when people, like, hold up the radio to, like, impress the person. Yeah. That's so much better than doing a murder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Murder. Maybe do that. Yeah. Murder's not good. Find another hobby. Yes. <laughs> I feel like there's a part of my brain now that wants to make a list of other movies. Or, like, more suitable mo- movies if you are tempted to commit murders. Yeah. Like, here's some other movies you can watch. I'm trying to think of one where someone helps people or something. I don't know. Or maybe just a Santa Claus movie, you know? Just, yeah, like, like a, yes. give out some presents. Yeah, like a holiday movie, a Lifetime movie. Uh, Not Lifetime, because then they'll oh, be doing really of, weird, dumb yeah, murders. Yeah, they'll yeah. be even stupider murders. Hallmark? Is Hallmark the one? Hallmark. Oh, yeah. my God, yes. Maybe they yeah. should get some, like, lumberjack shirts yeah. and go fall in love in a small town. <laughs> That is something we can... That's how we fix society, Aaron. I'm not pro-Hallmark movie at all, but if it stops these idiots from committing murders, then... Yeah, it's better than murder. Yes. Okay, so he decides he wants to do this terrible murder. He then asked the, the guys if they were, quote, down for it, unquote. 
Before waiting for an answer, he turned to Jerome Hunter and said, I know you're down for it. And he said that because Jerome also felt like he had items stolen from Aaron's grandmother's house. Even though, again, these were not stolen items, they were squatters, and she was just trying to fix her grandma's house up. Brandon says that Jerome did agree first to help Victorino, and he was followed by Anthony Cannon and Michael Salas. According to Brandon, he actually agreed initially, too, because he was afraid that if he didn't, that they would kill him. Victorino explained the layout of the Telford house and gave instructions about where everyone would go. He then told the young men that they'd have to, quote, beat the bitches bad, unquote. Wow. Yeah. Hunter then asked Victorino if they should wear masks while committing the murders. And he responded, quote, no, because we're not going to leave any evidence. We're going to kill them all, unquote. Dude. Yes. Oh, my God. He is the worst. Also, kind of a dumbass because evidence and witnesses are not the same thing. Yeah. And spoilers, he would leave some evidence. Of course. Yeah. Brandon Graham says that he was able to get out of the house that night by pretending that he needed to take care of something at a friend's house before school started the next Monday. And they definitely didn't want him to leave, but he used this opportunity to hide out from Victorino so that he didn't have to participate in the murder. And it worked. Like, he literally hid at his friend's house for a couple of days until after the murders were done. Now... Obviously, it would have been nice if he would have called the police. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, it's good that you didn't go do the murders, but like, yeah. give them a heads up, y'all. Come on. Call up and be and just tell them what's going on because maybe that could have helped prevent what's going to happen. But at least he didn't do it because at first when he, when he was saying, well, I felt like I had to because I was scared. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Like, don't, you can't, that's not an excuse for committing murders. That's true. On August 5th, 2004, Victorino went to a meeting with his probation officer, who knew that he violated probation and yet still did not arrest him. And according to people close to the situation, what should have happened is the probation officer should have called the police to come arrest him, or at least put out a warrant in that moment, but he decided to wait until later for some unknown reason. Yeah. That night, is the night that Victorino and his crew decided to carry out their attack on Telford. The night of August 5th, 28-year-old Roberto Tito Gonzalez and 18-year-old Jonathan Gleason slept over at the house on Telford. Like Aaron, Flacco, and Michelle, one of them worked at the nearby Burger King, and they both had to be up early the next morning. It just made sense for them to sleep over there and head to work early in the morning because some of the people in the household were going to be working an early shift at Burger King. And then the, the two of the guys had a job working for the husband of one of the Burger King employees. So they kind of all were going in the same general location. So it just made sense for them to all sleep in the same house. Jonathan Gleason was a bright kid who liked to write and be creative he enjoyed dancing, acting, and telling jokes. And I couldn't find a lot of information on Tito Gonzalez, but everyone agrees that he was a nice guy. On August 6, 2004, the crew members who were supposed to work early at Burger King did not show up for their shift, which was out of character. At the same time, 
Christopher Carroll went to the house on Telford to pick up Tito Gonzalez and Anthony Vega, the two guys who worked for him. Carol also is the guy who happened to be dating one of the girls that worked at Burger King. So they all knew each other. And he knew that some of the Burger King crew members had not shown up early like they were supposed to because he had found out from his girlfriend that they were late. So he went to the house and was expecting to maybe see something weird. But when he got there, it was way more weird than he could have anticipated. Because he went to the front door to knock and someone had actually kicked it open. And there was still a footprint in like the middle of the door. Oh, wow. Yeah. Carol called out and no one responded. And so he went inside and he found a bloodbath. Christopher Carroll called 911 and in a state of shock, he told the dispatcher that he thought he found a murder. He, even though there was blood everywhere, he was really confused about what he was seeing. And so they were asking him like, well, are you like, are you sure it's a murder? How many people are there? And he was telling them there's four or five people. They're just laying there. And he had gone back to one of the bedrooms. And when he saw how much blood there was, he just backed out and called police. But it kind of sounds like he was in so much shock that he didn't want to believe what he saw. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that. I mean, obviously, I've never seen a murder scene. But I can imagine, like, that you would just kind of be in disbelief. Like, surely mm-hmm. that's not what I'm seeing. You know what I mean? Because, mm-hmm. like, I, I, I mean... I, I don't know. I don't think anyone expects to no. walk in and see a murder scene. Mm-mm. And so when you are seeing it, like, surely there's got to be that shock and disbelief yeah. of, like, is this real life? Is this really happening? Maybe it's a prank. Right. Maybe Hopefully it's, it's a prank. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. First responders rushed to the scene. And inside, authorities found the bodies of 22-year-old Aaron Bellinger, 30-year-old Francisco Ayo Flacco Roman, 19-year-old Michelle Nathan... 34-year-old Anthony Vega, 28-year-old Roberto Tito Gonzalez, and 18-year-old Jonathan Gleason. The six victims were spread throughout the house. Jonathan Gleason had been sleeping in a recliner in the living room. Aaron and Flacco were sleeping in the master bedroom. Michelle was in one of the bedrooms near the closet. Anthony had been attacked in a bedroom, but he had managed to try to run away. He got to the living room before he collapsed, and so that's where they found his body. And I'm not sure where they found Tito Gonzalez. First first responders said that every single room in the house had blood in it. That's how violent these murders had been. And there are crime scene pictures out there, and some of the ones that I saw, which I don't intentionally look at, but I did watch a show about this one, It is just graphically horrible. Like, that much blood should not be able to be on a wall. Yeah, that's unbelievable. That's so sad and so gross. Authorities say that the victims were asleep in their beds when the attack started. And that none of the neighbors reported hearing them shout or call for help. But that may have been something said to comfort the public at first. Because as the medical reports came out... The medical examiner determined that most of them actually did wake up during the attack because most of them had defensive wounds. It would have been loud because one of the attackers kicked the door in. So it's not like most people are going to sleep through that, especially the people who were in the living room. Yeah, they're not exactly trying to be stealthy about it. No, there is kind of a bang, we're just going to do this type of thing. All of them have been beaten to death with aluminum baseball bats. 
And they had also had their throats cut with knives that were found in the house. And the baseball bats were the primary means of murder because most of them died before their throats were cut. Their throats were cut more to ensure that they were gone. And the beatings were so bad that some of the victims were unrecognizable. And so it would have been very difficult for them to have all slept through that. Yeah, that's so tragic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just really just horrifying. Yeah, it's absolutely horrifying. 19-year-old Michelle had to be identified by her tattoos. She had a tattoo that read princess on her back and two star tattoos on her hips. And I think hers was the saddest for me because in addition to being 19, which they're all super young, but she was she was 19, she had a moment to try to get away. She was one who woke up and she hid in her closet under a pile of laundry. And like, I could definitely see that logic. Like it sounds like such a good idea and it should have worked. I don't know what gave her away. I don't know if they just knew she was there, but they found her there and one of the men attacked her with a bat. And so it's just like extra sad that she hopefully there was probably a moment where she thought she got away. It's just depressing. And she may have been the extra person too, because there were six victims, but four murderers. So that kind of enabled them more easily to dominate the scene. But two people would have had a moment yeah, to maybe get away. And she was one of them. And it's just depressing. Yeah, very much so. In addition to beating Aaron to death, Victorino also sexually assaulted her with his bat. Oh my God. Yeah. Ugh. In addition to the six victims, Aaron's dog also died in the attack. Oh my God, they killed the dog? Yes, and I know hell, but I'm not going to tell you because it's just really bad. Yeah, what a psycho. I'm sorry for telling you about the dog. Obviously, killing six people is horrible, but then to also hurt a dog on top of that. uh, What a psycho. And then later on, Victorino joked that he killed the dog so it couldn't identify him. Dude. Yeah. How do you make jokes after doing something so horrible? Because something is wrong with him. I mean, clearly, I just, that's so cold. Like, I I don't get it, man. Police deduced that the motive for these murders was the missing clothing and the Xbox. Because of this, the massacre was originally called the Xbox murders. So it's kind of alternatively called the Xbox murders and the Deltona massacre. Because there were six victims and the killers used bats, the crime scene was horrifically bloody. There was blood splatter all over the walls and ceilings, as well as large pools of blood and large swaths of blood on some of the walls. The investigators recovered one of the bloody bats at the scene, as well as a knife and a broken knife handle that had blood on it. Sheriff Ben Johnson described the scene saying, quote, a lot of trauma, a lot of blood splatter, just a very, very brutal crime, unquote. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Jesus. This case reminded me a lot of the Manson murders in a way because I feel like you feel safer when people are staying with you, like their safety in numbers. There were six people staying in this house. And I feel like if that were me, I would feel so safe having six people with me, having the doors locked, the windows locked, having a dog that could bark and wake everyone up if someone burst in. And that's clearly not always true. Yeah. Because this gang of 
psychos can just break in and murder you. Yeah, legit. The murders were so terrifying that they made the national news, and that resulted in Aaron's dad finding out about her murder from a friend before police had time to contact him. Oh, no. Oh, my God. That is so awful. Because remember, he lived out of state. He was in Massachusetts. So they were still working their way through six victims worth of families when one of his friends saw it on the news and called him, like, alarmed. Dude. Yeah. Can you imagine finding out that way? That's no, just so terrible. terrible. People from all over came to pay their respects to the victims, creating an impromptu memorial around the murder house. Ironically, the warrant for Victorino's arrest for violating his parole came down on the afternoon of August 6th, just hours after the murders. It had been nine days since that parole violation, so a more timely warrant could literally have saved six lives. Yeah, for real. I mean, there's no reason. Like, he should have been in prison when this happened. Yes. And there's an episode of The Real Story with Maria Elena Salinas about this. She really hammers home about this and even directly asks some of the police officers about this oversight. Like, literally, this should never have happened. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the most tragic things about Mm -hmm. it. You know, is how avoidable it was. Yeah. Because, I mean... Between this and also between the fact that between the 29th, or between July 30th and when the murders happened, Aaron had called the police multiple times about incidences with this guy. And also, he had participated in two assaults. Yeah. And it's like, how on earth could this have possibly happened? Yeah, like he violated his parole a whole bunch of times. Not just even yeah. once, you know? Plus, also, we know that, that Brandon Graham backed out and was hiding from the crew. If he had said something, that also might have helped prevent this murder. So it's, it's like there's all these different ways that the murder could have not happened. And then just everything lined up to allow this group of men to slaughter six people and a dog. At the same time they were arresting Victorino for the parole violation, the investigators took Anthony Cannon's SUV into evidence. Inside it, they found sunglasses with Flacco's prints on them, as well as a piece of glass from a broken lamp at the Telford house. Authorities arrested Victorino, and they also picked up the 18-year-old killers within 48 hours of the murders. The three 18-year-olds, Jerome Hunter, Michael Salas, and Anthony Cannon, all confessed to their roles in the crime. Jerome Hunter actually confessed first, and this is what he told the police. According to Hunter, Anthony Cannon and Michael Salas picked up Victorino and himself at around midnight just as the day was turning to Friday, August 6th, 2004. The crew stopped by Papa Joe's, which is a bar, to drop off Victorino before going to the house on Telford. At that point, he tried to claim that Victorino wasn't actually at the house. However, police did not believe that for a lot of reasons, which we'll come to find out, in addition to the fact that he planned this, though. They, they suspected that he was the ringleader, so they did not believe this story. Eventually, though, between all of the guys giving their own version of events, and also Brandon Graham was arrested at one point, too, and he also provided a lot of insights into this case, they were able to determine that Victorino was with the guys when they committed the brutal murder. They did stop off at Papa Joe's, which is sometimes referred to as a nightclub, and that was so that Victorino could go in and see some friends and kind of establish an alibi, and then they all went to the house together. 
They pulled up to the Telford house at about 1 a.m. in the wee hours of August 6th. When they got there, Victorino kicked in the locked front door and the group of men attacked without mercy. Now, the reason why we know that Victorino is the one who kicked down the door is because he left that footprint and he had a special kind of boot that he liked to wear. So they knew that it came from that boot. Yep. How's that for not leaving mm-hmm. any evidence behind, right? Mm-hmm. According to accounts, Victorino and Hunter may have inflicted most of the violence. That information likely came from Anthony Cannon, because he later claimed that he and Michael Salas only went along with the plan because they were afraid of Victorino. Now, important note, they had time to ask for help to get out of this. There are some cases where there are people who allegedly participated in a crime because they were scared, but it's like a continuous thing, you know? But, like, they were able to leave at multiple times, and Brandon was able to go hide for two days. Like, there were options of that were not murder. Yeah. And I, I do find it interesting that, like, the first couple to give a full confession are also like, that was because they did it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I fully believe that, that most of the violence was just those two dudes, especially considering that there were six people in the house and four of them were men. And two of them were men that did physical labor t- type stuff. And like all the guys were like fit guys. Like none of them, not that that should matter, but like in terms of fighting back. Yeah, none of them were like frail or disabled yeah. or... They were all, like, able-bodied, healthy dudes, like, ranging in age from 17, 18 up to, like, 34. So, like, these are all able-bodied guys. And also, the girls, Aaron and Michelle, they're young. Michelle was 19. Aaron was 22. They both were also, you know, fit, able-bodied people. Like, they weren't, like, struggling for taking care of themselves, if that makes sense. Oh, totally it Like, does. they're in the prime of their lives here. Yeah, yeah. Two people are probably not overpowering that group. Six people. Yeah. No. Four is much more likely. Yeah, yeah, four, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. At first, everyone thought that the clothes and the Xbox had been the motive for the crime, and that's what was being reported. But by this point, the investigators didn't think this made sense. Why would the three younger men inflict so much violence for such a petty reason? Especially considering that Salas and Cannon didn't even have stuff that were was involved here. Later on, during interrogation, Jerome Hunter admitted that the real reason why he and Victorino were so upset was that he felt like Aaron and Flacco had disrespected them. Mm, by taking the stuff and by not immediately giving it back and by not wanting them to be squatters in the house. That this was a disrespect thing. Yeah. And so this was kind of a revenge murder. And Michael Salas and Anthony Cannon, even though they didn't know the victims, they were having a conflict with Abby Vasquez that I talked about earlier and Abby's twin. Abby's a guy, by the way. And they, like, the twins had some kind of conflict with Michael Salas and Anthony Cannon. And so the fact that they were, like, in the opposite rival friend group was part of a motive for them to go along with this. Interesting. Yeah. And even though Abby did not live at the house, allegations were made that Victorino had been telling them that maybe Abby would be there that night and that they would be able to get revenge on Abby. Right, right. And also, if you recall, this group had cut Abby's tires earlier So it seemed more like at that point to investigators that the tire cutting was on purpose and they knew that it wasn't Aaron's car, but they didn't care because they were like, it's that guy, let's cut the tires. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. 
All three of the younger men confessed and blamed each other. But Victorino refused to talk to the police. The young men eventually told the cops that they had discarded the four bats in a local pond. Now, this is a little confusing because some of the court documents say that they found a bat in the house. So it's unclear if there were five bats or if maybe there was like one bat at the house and then three bats out of the pond. But they had thrown these bats into the pond at nighttime from like a high up place. So two of the bats had actually landed in the trees, which was awesome for investigators because the crime scene techs were able to recover blood and hair from these bats that were able to connect the bats to the murder and also connect back to the killers because there was, there was like fingerprints and DNA and stuff. And so this helped them to tie Victorino to the crime because they could find some of his stuff on there. Yep. Also, crime scene investigators found DNA from the victims on Victorino's boots, as well as his DNA on a bloody sheet that was in the house. Additionally, they found DNA and blood evidence on some playing cards that included a boot print that were in the house and also a pay stub that was found at the crime scene. All of this helped them build a case that would show that Victorino was actually at the house and not out with his friends. He said he was at that nightclub slash bar eating pizza and drinking with his friends during the murders. But they were able to show that he had to be in the house because of all this information. Yep. At trial, he continued to maintain his innocence, though. And he actually argued that someone could have just borrowed his boots and brought them back. Bullshit. Yeah. So they just happened to murder this person you had a problem with. Yeah. Plus, I mean, honestly, a dude that big probably doesn't have a, a shoe size that a lot of people wear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like he's wearing the, the like the average shoe that like you can just find anybody off the street that wears. Exactly. Yeah. The prosecution had a star witness in the form of Brandon Graham because Brandon did not participate in the murders. And so he had no reason to lie about who was involved in planning the crime. Like he literally, there was no reason for him to because he wasn't facing charges for the murders. Yeah. But before he could testify, authorities had to keep him safe until trial because they were legitimately worried that Victorino's contacts might kill Brandon. Yeah, understandably. I mean, that kind of shit happens. Robert Anthony Cannon took a plea deal and received a sentence of life in prison in exchange for that plea. He also testified as a state's witness as part of his plea deal, though he did end up getting upset on the stand and refused to be cross-examined, which later on became an issue with appeals. Yeah. Victorino, Hunter, and Salas all chose to go to trial, and the state tried them together in one joint trial. All three decided to testify in their own defense. Victorino claimed that he did not participate in the crime at all. He said that during the times that they were planning the murder, that he was actually at work. And that on the night of the murders, he had gone to that nightclub to have pizza and drink with his friends. Two of his friends testified to seeing him there. Hunter and Salas also both testified, and they confirmed the details of the story given by by Anthony Cannon during his plea deal. Additionally, Brandon Graham testified about all of the murder plans that Victorino led and everything leading up to this crime. The prosecution was also able to provide all the DNA and shoe print evidence left at the crime scene and what they found on Victorino's boots. 
It's also important to note that the younger guys had testified that the alibi that they created at the nightclub was on purpose. And so there were probably people that really did see Victorino there that night, but that he was only there briefly, not for the entire time. Yeah. The jury returned a verdict on July 25th, 2006, which was nearly two years after the murders. After six hours of deliberation, the jury convicted all three of the defendants. The charges that Victorino was convicted of include six counts of first-degree murder, one count of abuse of a dead body, one count of burglary of a dwelling, one count of cruelty to an animal, and one count of conspiracy. The rest of the defendants were mostly convicted of the six counts of first-degree murder and the conspiracy charges, but Jerome Hunter also had abuse of a dead body as well. The jury recommended a sentence of life in prison without parole for Michael Salas. But Victorino and Hunter received death sentences for the murders of Aaron, Flacco, Gleason, and Gonzalez, as well as life sentences for the murders of Michelle and Anthony. The jury recommendations for death weren't unanimous, though, and this would later become an issue. Two of the death sentences were 10-2, and the rest were narrower margins. It kind of makes sense for Victorino to get death, if we're being honest, even though we're not pro-death penalty, because of his criminal history and the extra injuries that he inflicted on Aaron. Additionally, he was the one who killed the dog. However, it's unsettling to look at the four perpetrators, all convicted of the same crimes, and see that the two who have dark skin received death and the two with light skin received life. That in itself is a problem. Yeah, for sure. Just going to say. So that's one thing that I feel like stands out when you look at all four of them together. Because they're like literally two dark skinned people and two light skinned people. And the two light skinned people got life. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you, it kind of raises your eyebrow a little bit. Yeah. The optics here are not looking good. And I feel like it applies more to Jerome Hunter and less so to Victorino. But I don't think that Jerome Hunter should have gotten death just because I feel like he should have gotten the same sentence as his co-conspirators. Yeah, I could see that. In October 2016, the Florida Supreme Court actually decided that the death sentences without a unanimous jury recommendation are unconstitutional. In 2017, based on that ruling, Circuit Judge Randall Rowe III overturned Victorino and Hunter's death sentences, and they were ordered to have a resentencing hearing. Victorino appealed to have his sentence automatically converted to life in prison at that point. And he had some interesting arguments for that appeal. He actually argued that sentencing him to death again would be double jeopardy. And also that the hearing would violate the 6th and 14th Amendments. Huh. He lost that appeal. I was going to say, I don't think that's how double jeopardy works. No, it's not. And that's what the the appeals court eventually decided. (laughs) But yeah, they tried that anyway. So the prosecution decided to pursue the death penalty again, though the jury would have to unanimously agree or the pair would automatically get a life sentence. But they were able to delay this for a really long time. So they, they were ordered to get new hearings in 2017, but the hearings did not start until 2023. And I'm sure part of the delay was COVID, although it is Florida. So it's not like they were doing COVID the whole time. So <laughs> I'm not trying to be a hater. I live in Texas. I can't judge, but... I mean, it's not like they did the whole pandemic like everybody else. So I'm just saying. The first resentencing hearing started in April of 2023, and they made it two whole days. But then the prosecution got an emergency stay 
because the court said that they could not rely on a new Florida law. Now, the judge that was presiding, presiding, the judge that was presiding over this was that same circuit judge, Randall Rowe III, who had ordered that they would get a new hearing. And so whenever the prosecution came and was like, hey, guess what? Surprise, it turns out, and this is super fun, the Florida Supreme Court decided that they were actually wrong the first time and that unanimous juries were not unconstitutional. And that enabled the state of Florida to pass a new law. So they passed a new law saying that as long as the jury recommended at least eight to four, so eight people and or more of the jurors wanted the death sentence, then that would count as unanimous. I don't think they know what the dictionary definition of unanimous no, is. But that's what they're going to do. Yep. So the prosecution was like, how how awesome. Like, we waited six years to do this resentencing, and now it doesn't matter. We can totally have uneven, like, we don't have unanimous anymore. Like, yay. Yeah. How fortuitous. How fortuitous. We know yeah. one could have foreseen this, which, ironically, them foreseeing it is one of the things that was used against the defense of, like, that they should have anticipated this. So... The judge tells them you can't use the new law that was just passed. And so the prosecution filed for an emergency stay and they got it. And initially, Judge Rowe was like, I'm not declaring a mistrial. We've already had two days of this. It's been going on for six whole years. Fuck that shit. I'm going to just pause the trial. But that's not going to work for, for anybody because they had to go all the way to the 5th District Court of Appeals, which had to take some time. So in May 2023, which was a couple of weeks after the hearing had started, the judge had to just declare a mistrial anyway because essentially he was asking the jurors to just have like open availability until and just until, and they were unhappy about that for obvious reasons. Yeah, I'd be kind of pissed off if yeah. I was in jury duty and I got that. And they were like, just at some point we're going to finish this trial. Yeah, and so and also it was hard to keep them from getting poisoned by the media during that time. It was like a whole thing. Oh yeah. So he just declared a mistrial, and in September, the Fifth District Court of Appeals finally gave a ruling on the issue, and they actually sided with the prosecution. So the new Florida law will apply in Victorino and Hunter's cases. And it is unclear when the resentencing hearings will take place now because they had to schedule them after the September. So at some point they'll be resentenced. I have a strong feeling that based on the presence of Florida and the fact that like they killed six people and a dog, kind of feel like at least eight people are going to recommend death, especially for Victorino. And that's probably what's going to happen, but we can't say for sure. And I have some more information about some follow-up. So when it comes to Brandon Graham, the guy who did not report that this was going to happen, in an interview with Maria Elena Salinas, he says that he does feel regret every day for not trying to report the crime. Also, if you recall, the probation officer did not arrest Victorino early enough. That guy was fired, as well as three of his supervisors. Well, I mean, you did the you, you did the wrong thing. I mean, yeah. like I think that makes sense. I, I mean, I, I mean, it sucks to to lose your job. I mean, honestly, your fuck up killed six people and a dog. Yeah, for reals. I mean, shit, you know. Yeah, so that's happening with that. While researching this case, I also learned that some gross person was auctioning off an item that belonged to Victorino. So boo. That sucks. I know, right? It's kind of interesting because this case did make the national news 
but it kind of faded off. And I feel like it's because it's just that terrifying. I've noticed that there are a few cases out there that are just so horrifying that nobody wants to talk about them. And I get that. When I saw this case, I was shocked that I had never heard of it. I was like, oh my God, the Deltona massacre. How have I never heard of this? Like, this seems like such a big case. But as I learned more details, especially reading some of the court documents, oh my God, this was absolutely disgusting. It was just stomach churning. Like, I feel gross. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just, sometimes you just don't want to think about something so grisly yeah. and so horrible, you know? Like... As a society, sometimes you just try to yeah, put it out of your mind, I guess, because mm-hmm. some things are extremely unpleasant. Yeah, and I personally am not interested in true crime for, like, because of the gore and stuff like that. Like, I'm yeah. interested in more of, like, why are people like this and how do people solve mysteries and that kind of stuff. And how to protect yourself. Yeah, how to protect you yourself, the lessons it. you can learn. Yeah. Also, I personally feel like talking about things helps to keep memories alive and also helps us like learn from that experience. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's kind of sad when people's stories aren't talked about because it makes people uncomfortable because sometimes stuff just makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, that's true. Like there are several cases. Like I am yeah. still thinking about Rasheem Carter and the fact that he was obviously murdered and that there are disgusting racists in, in this world that do that type of thing. That makes me incredibly uncomfortable. But not talking about it is going to just allow the problem to keep going. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if you forget about something, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I also think that in this case, since there were obvious things that could have been done about it, it is worth talking about just because I think there's lessons to learn about the system because there were so many opportunities for them to have arrested Victorino earlier And I think that sometimes we have to be mindful of who are we allowing second chances to, if that makes sense, or like fourth or fifth or eighth chances, and also how we're going about doing that. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's so many people who are unfairly institutionalized in our system and who are put at a disadvantage that they can't get out of. Like, for instance, on Love After Lockup when Michael was 10 minutes late and it's like, why is he going back to jail? That's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. But this guy absolutely should have been in jail. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me like people who have violent offenses honestly need to be treated with a, a much shorter lease than people who are not in the system for violent offenses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like we hear it time and time again and like there was... I don't, I don't know if it's still a problem, but, it, like, there was a, a rash of this kind of shit in Houston. Yeah, it's still you know, going on. Yeah, where, like, violent offenders are out on bail and then committing more violent offenses, right? Yeah. And that, it seems to me like, I mean, it's easy to, to look back in 2020, 2020 vision and say, hey, you know, uh, mm-hmm. y- you know, obviously that was a mistake. But on the other hand, I mean, there's enough of a pattern that you can kind of see Violent offenders need to be given a much shorter lease, mm-hmm. or violent—not um, even uh, offenders, but violent, def- like defendants. You know, like, like allegedly, yeah. allegedly violent people, right? Need to be treated with a shorter leash than people who are accused of crimes of like drugs or things that are, you know, not violent, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I don't know. That's that's kind of my take on yeah, it. Yeah, I feel like well, part of the problem we're having here in Houston is that for a long time we had an unfair bail system. And one of the things that happens with unfair bail systems is that people end up sitting in jail for long periods of time when they haven't been convicted of anything. 
And then they either, A, feel pressed to take a deal because they can go home, but then they have a criminal record when they might not have done anything. And, like, that's, like, a common tactic that, like, prosecutors will use to, to clear cases where, like, someone might have been sitting in jail for, like, six months being accused of either something they didn't do or something really minor. And then they'll go to them and be like, hey, if you plead guilty to this small charge, you will give you six months in exchange for it and you already served it. So you can just walk out today. And it's like, why would you keep sitting in jail for an indeterminate amount of time when you can just walk home? And that's part of the problem that occurs with, with this unequal bail system. But then there's the opposite, which is what we're seeing in Houston now, where pretty much everybody is getting bail and they're just committing infinite crimes. So you kind of have to know who is getting the bail and why, I guess. Yeah. Like, in this case, he got bail on a parole violation for assaulting someone when he almost killed somebody prior to this. Yeah. So, like, that's not a situation where he should be walking the streets. Whereas, like, most crimes are alleged. If you haven't ever committed a crime and we're alleging that you committed a crime, depending on what the crime is and how much evidence there is, like how strong the case is, you might shouldn't be waiting in jail for that trial. Yeah. Kind of depends on the situation. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like we totally agree with each other, but we just stated it differently. Yeah, yeah, totally. Anyway, I'm sorry for ruining all y'all's days by telling you about these six awesome people who were murdered and the dog, which is scarring us all for life. But also don't look up the dog information because you will be regretting it. Okay, well, thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us, even though this case is really terrible. You can totally go listen to some more stuff on our Patreon. One of the cases that we recently did, we did some murder for hire oopsie cases. I personally love it when people are stupid and get caught trying to hire someone to kill somebody. And these cases are like the weirdest ones that I've ever found so far, in my opinion. And in one of them, we learned about the movie Flashdance that we have never seen. <laughs> and I feel like that was one of our funniest moments, personally. Yeah, that, Because that was... we were genuinely upset. We were like... Yeah, we went. There, there was a whole discussion. It's really hilarious. Yeah. And you should go listen to we it. We still have not watched Flashdance. We were going to, but then we realized that we're probably not going to like that movie. Yeah. I mean, honestly, after our discussion, I feel like I've already watched it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I don't need to watch it because I feel like we've already figured it out. For sure. I feel like we, we considered starting another podcast where <laughs> we don't watch a movie, but we just look up like the Wikipedia page, and then react to what it says. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know if that's a good idea, but maybe. Look, I think it'd be fucking hilarious. I think it would be, too, because there's a <laughs> lot of movies out there that are really struggling for their plots. Yeah. Like, I feel like just reading, like, the synopsis, especially if you just read, like, the first couple paragraphs and not yeah. the whole thing. You're just like, what and, is happening? Yeah, like, you just... I feel like that would be absolutely hysterical. I mean, how did this get made is the question that I'm asking myself here. Yeah. Okay, peeps. Go check out the Patreon. The membership started at a dollar. It's very cheap. Also, if you would like to email us, you can do that at badaxpod at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to follow us on social media, it's at badaxpod. That's a cool place to go. We have a website, badaxpod.com. And also, we have love in our hearts for all of you and for our peeps, our patrons and supporters. Don't join the subscription feed on your podcast platform because I'm trying to turn that off because it was costing more money, I feel like, and also making people very mad. And I don't have the energy to make people mad anymore. 
Yeah. I would prefer that you guys were all happy all the time. Like, that's my ideal. Yeah. <laughs> it's my ideal world is, like, all of you are happy. It's not... So far, I have not achieved that mission in life. Maybe I should have picked a different topic that's not horrible, sad murders. Yeah, maybe. I just I just start, like, another podcast that's just me giving people compliments. <laughs> that's that's my new plan. The Happy Sunshine Podcast. The Happy Sunshine Podcast. Somebody be mad about that, too. I'm sure they would. I can't win. Also, we are sad about the current war in Israel slash Gaza, and we wish that it wasn't happening because... Yeah. Nobody deserves this. Yeah. And also, terrorists should not be terrorists. Yeah, hopefully there can be a, a quick resolution. And, yes. Uh, you know, hopefully they can get, get back to having peace. And, the you know, the innocent people who are caught in the crossfire can be uh, yes. safe and and not, not getting hurt. Cause, I mean, that's the most tragic part here. Yeah. I mean, obviously. There's so many innocent people yeah. that are being harmed. And it's very distressing. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, I mean, definitely we're anti-terrorism and, and what mm-hmm. you know what hamas did is is you know unconscionable. i mean and obviously the, you know the festival goers didn't deserve to be hurt but also you know the innocent people who are caught in this in this war they also don't deserve to be hurt so no so we're very sad yeah, it's a just sad situation. all around and we yeah. hope for peace and safety in israel and in gaza yes very much so all right peeps we will see you guys later Bye-bye. bye bye